You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Stories of Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be your Chickasaw native, your Chickasaw Hall of Famer, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And what a treat we got today. He is a catch world champion. He is a no-gi jiu-jitsu world champion. He is the last openweight pancreas, king of pancreas champion, youngest UFC world champion. Basically, he holds every world championship that's ever been made. He is Mr. Josh Barnett. Josh, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be here. And, uh, uh, you know, and what do I do? I take all that and become a worker so <laughs> <laughs> that's right you're into the easier stuff now well you know that's what gene labelle would say all the time he's like what are you doing all this shoot stuff for get in the <laughs> ring and just you know go work it's so much easier and i just think what are you talking about gene i don't remember not getting beat up bumped up hurt bruised and all that kind of stuff working in new japan I, if it didn't i don't I, I had to contemplate which was harder on my body you know you know, yeah, Shamrock yeah, said, Josh, the, Josh, said the same thing. That. He said, you know, it's easier in the UFC because I don't have to get hit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True enough. Yeah. If you if I want to take you out in a squash, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, otherwise, uh, you know, oh, no, we're here. Uh, it's, my, it's raw. Actually, I need you to go 11 minutes tonight. It's okay, I guess. <laughs> Josh, you're speaking of getting beat up and all that stuff. I, I, I understand, you know, doing a little research on you before the show this week. Uh, you know, you're going into your bios and all that stuff. You're growing up, and you're 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 a young man that had had a, I guess had a few issues in, in your mind, and 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 a kind of a wrestling coach kind of stepped in and kind of drew you into into the sport of wrestling and kind of got you calmed down. Is that correct or what? Uh, essentially, I mean, really, athletics was a great place for me to put all this energy and this this uh, vitality into something in a positive light but it was also a way that I could take some control over like my own life let's say and try to control that direction of what I want to do with it and realize uh, 
you know, things that I hadn't ever considered before, you know, and a way I could go my own way. And that was really, I think, the strongest part about it, because uh, I, I guess I wasn't a, a person built to really fully integrate into the way the world was working at that time. And, you know, I had troubles with that. But once I could find myself in sports and especially wrestling as an individual sport and as a combat sport, that was like the perfect outlet. And it, and it was, you could use like a, a cheesy term, like self-actualization, but for real, that's where I was really able to develop who I am uh, most of all. And that's also where I, I learned where those deepest relationships can be made, where those mentorships could be there because uh, you know, most of all of human history, is, people are built on mentorships and, and keeping that alive and moving down from one to the next. I mean, that's one of the kind of the core old school tenets of pro wrestling is you take people under your wing. You know, the idea of the uh, paying your dues wasn't just so, you know, some cheese ball promoter these days could just take advantage of you for cheap or for free. In fact, it was like there was a responsibility from the, those 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 veterans, you know, to, to bring these new guys in. And if these new guys got it and they could get with the program, well, then you could be a part of this and we'll, we'll work with you and we'll build you up. And you know, if you keep at it, you, you'll have your own thing at some point, but uh, you know, that's the amount of effort and responsibility that, that comes with that. There's like a, you know, kind of an obligation. I saw it, which is, you know, why I take on the the athletes, uh, the shooters and the workers that I do. It's the same thing. You know, every a lot of people will, oh, well, you teach me, will you run me, will you do this? And it's like, well, it's not just that simple. It's about, you know, who are you as a person, not just whether or not you can you can pack the seats and all that, I, whether you're going to be the hottest worker or shooter that the world's ever seen or you're just going to be wherever you end up, but you're going to be the best version of you. Uh, that's I'm just really more interested in the in the, the latter, not the former. Yeah, it just just seems like to me those old wrestling coaches because I, I was my life was full full of uh, old wrestling coaches. <laughs> seems like they 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 developed into the perfect mentor mentors mm -hmm. for for kids like you and, and like for me that it really had no direction. It was kind of out there, kind of shotgun like, and just trying to find the direction. But this coach, even he, after you even went to college, he he played an important role in you mm -hmm. kind of evolving in, into. Uh, what you became right well yeah and then uh my coaches always were kind of around the peripheral uh even when they were no longer directly involved in, in exactly my development you know i was out in montana training under jim harrison uh he's a karate judo guy kickboxer martial artist you know one of these you know legends of legends from the old bare knuckle karate days and you know a real tough son of a gun but uh but, you know, a wrestling coach came back around and, and connected me with Matt Hume for my first my first fight. And, you know, these people still have, you know, been around and supported me in one way or another. And and as even I left Jim Harrison, started training under Harushi Manishi and Matt Hume at AMC Pancration. So now I'm at this actual professional fight school geared towards uh, churning out pro MMA fighters, which was a really rarity in 1997. So, uh, or 90, 98, well, yeah, 97, um, you know, Jim Harrison was still a part of that process and, and he would always check in with me. We'd have conversations and you know, I think it's, uh, it's not, a it's not transactional. You don't really work with these coaches and then it's like, oh, well, you taught me what you needed to know for this, for this period. And then I move on and then that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's, 
you know, people aren't transactional. And, uh, oh, I do got to bring this up totally unrelated. Uh, but, uh, you know, John, we got the same initials. They were just, we're just rotated instead of JL, JBL. I'm JLB. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. That's uh, you know, the, the, I don't know how they trademarked it because the JBL was, you know, everything. <laughs> yeah, so I, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and the best thing about it was when I came in, Vince gave me the name Justin. Uh, I was Justin Bradshaw, and I'd been right. John Hawk, but guys didn't last very long in the WWE at the time. You know, right. so I wanted to be named Justin Hawk so that I could leave and probably wrestle in Japan or something because mm -hmm. heels didn't last two or three years. That you know, the business changed. And then guys lasted long term. So he goes, I'll just give you the name Justin Hawk Bradshaw. And so now all my autographs are now Justin Hawk Bradshaw. Well, now it's just <laughs> now it's just JBL. It's the greatest well, thing ever. Oh, what a what a what a thing he did for you there with that JBL. That's the easiest signature you can whip off. You know, oh. you've got a bunch of eight by tens and all this. It's like it's no big deal. Uh, I started uh seeing how people that did it on the regular started signing things. I'm like, Man, I don't want to put nicknames and all this stuff in there. I'll be here all day. My hand yeah. is creeped up. You know, you're gonna you're gonna put me over <laughs> oh, <laughs> with yeah. just a simple signature. That that, that works for me. Oh uh, yeah. And by the way, if those speakers ever wanted to, to, to have a word with them, just see if they could take a lariat and whoever, that, that's whoever exactly wins, right. wins, right? That's exactly right. I I learned that over several weeks in Japan. You know how that is being over there. You, you tend to learn something enough to survive. Not not mm -hmm. that it, it, survive as far as get a finish that people will believe in. Yeah, well, it, it's about intention, right? If people, if you hit things like you really mean it, it, it could be a lariat, it could be a punch, it could be really anything. You could, it could be the biggest or the smallest, but they'll buy it because you buy it. You're telling them that it means it to you. You could do every cool move you've ever thought of, but if you don't have that intensity behind it, if you don't have that, like you're not doing it like you mean it, then they don't believe it either. Right, well, Josh, you, 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 you just made a comment that's so important to. <laughs> Not only our business, but to, to any business out there, mm -hmm. you got to do stuff like you really mean it. And in our business, where 99 and 9 tenths people know it's a work out there, but if you're doing something and like on John's Lariat, even though people knew it was a work out there, they knew that they didn't want to be hit by that damn thing. Mm -hmm. Because of number one, the intensity that John put in the effort of, of putting that thing out there. And so. What a statement that was. Yeah, Booker T right. killed me on the Laird. He told me a few, a few years ago he did an interview. He goes, oh, he never touched me with it. I said, Booker, you just killed my finish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, some of that has to go to the, your opponent, too. And the guy 100%. you're working. If he's really good at bumping, oh, yeah. you might not ever touch him. And, right. But but they'll put it over like you killed him. And that's, that's of course, that's the best case scenario. But if that worker, if their skill level is – maybe not where it needs to be then we're just giving them a little helping nudge you know what i mean it's just a just a, a little help in the right direction and uh you know the 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 comment that i made that uh, you know that intention that's how anoki was was training me that was that was the thing that he stressed more over everything else and you know and he he would talk about if he's wrestling andre the giant He's going to take into all these considerations, the way he's built, how, how his moves and all this stuff and how he would create a strategy to approach him. So it was never just, you know, walk 180, walk 90 degrees and lock up. Like, why would I, why am I going to lock up with Andre the Giant? He's going to yeah. kill me. He's, he's yeah. enormous. But, uh, you know, he was always going back to you. Your eyes got to show it. You know, it has to be, it's the intensity and the emotion and the, the sincerity, like the belief in what you're doing that that's the day number one. And, 
Now, I remember the first time I met uh, Stone Cold, we're at the uh, World's Gym in Santa Monica. Uh, no, not in the Venice uh, uh, kind of area around in L.A. And I don't know if you'd ever been there. You, you guys ever go be in town and go hit that place up to go work out. Uh, but I see him there and I'm like, holy shit, that's stone cold. What the hell? So uh, I kind of walk up to him after my workout and I said, hey, uh, nice to meet you. My name is, oh, I know who you are. I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm <laughs> getting recognized. That's cool. You know, I'm, I'm going to pop for that. And uh, we're talking, working and stuff. And he goes, he goes, you know what? Uh, Jake Roberts told me, think, shoot, but work. And I go, that's the easiest way to put it out there. Everything's a shoot, but you're working. And, uh, you know, that's it, easy to say. Harder to do, but it's important. And uh, like you're saying, I don't care if people know it's a work. Yeah. If we can, if if we're really capable of it, the best that are out there, they'll make you doubt. Yeah. Maybe the whole yeah. match or pieces of it. Oh, I I think I think JBL might have had. Maybe he got stiffed, and so he gave him a receipt. I don't know. Maybe he got mad. Maybe it was. The more they're talking, the more they they're trying to speculate on what happened. The more you know, you got them hooked, and the better it is for them too, man. Because then they yeah, got they, they want to believe. They want to yeah. believe. Yeah, and, and you, if you we some of our guys give them every reason not to believe. You know, True. And, yeah. and the great one, Johnny Valentine said, you know, I can't control what you think about the first three matches. I can control what you think about my match, and when you mm. need to watch my match, you're going to think I'm for real out there. And that was Johnny Valentine's entire philosophy in the business and johnny was so successful but you, you, you mentioned anton and oki mm-hmm. i had the privilege of being in the ring with him on several occasions yes a yes lot of that john and japanese tours and everything his intensity in the ring as a worker was was off the charts high i don't know if you've ever seen it but when i when i get involved with nxc our training facility over in orlando there and on the lockups, you know, everybody, you know, just dancing to the lockup. You don't do that. There, there's a video of my brother Jack and 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 Oki tying up. It's it's the most violent looking tie up you'll ever see in your life. And I I recommend any any young guy out there to just pull that Jack Briscoe and Tony and Oki lockup. That'll convince you right there that you'll mm-hmm. lose your you'll lose your 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 judgment on whether it's real or not. Well, yeah, and it's also treating something like locking up as this isn't just a. I'm not. This isn't throwaway nonsense. This is just where I start. I haven't done a move yet or whatever. It's like stop thinking about moves. Yeah. This lockup <laughs> sets the tone for everything. Not to right. mention, it's telling people whether or not you even care on that connection. Because the idea is, if if I'm locked up with you, you can do something to me. I can do something to you. I have no idea what that could be. I could get arm locked knocked out thrown on my back and pinned this whole match could end from that one lockup and you should treat it as that and i i teach a lot of guys and it's so funny how sometimes they're just like i never thought of that someone tries to lock up with me and i won't let them do it i just keep breaking it off and breaking it up no i want to lock up the way i want to because if i let you get ties well you're going to grab me the way that works best for you so just keep breaking it up and then eventually getting that lockup and then you're pummeling and you're working, you're maybe you're removing the hand, you're playing around a little bit, you're trying to jostle for jockey for position, and then yeah, then maybe you go into something, but uh, or or maybe you don't right away because I mean, how many wrestling matches you see a guy just step up, you know, get on the mat, make contact, and oh, and immediately they're just doing stuff. I mean, no, you want to find your your opening. If I if I'm JBL, I want to hit this big lariat. Well, I don't want you to tie up with me like that. And in fact, if you tie up, I might 
pass that arm by, arm drag you, send you off another direction so that I can get some distance and crack you in the face. Because if I could do that right away, well, I could get out of here easy, hit hit catering, and I'm done. <laughs> right. And you've seen it because you did a lot of commentary. You, you've seen it as well as I have been doing but commentary for so long and so watching so many matches. You get those guys in there like a Johnny Valentine, and all of a sudden they lock up in some big, stiff fashion, and, and literally the people notice the difference right away. Mm-hmm. It may not be, they may not be able to articulate what it is, but right away you can feel the difference in the arena that, okay, this this match is something to watch. Well, and isn't that, when we're commentating, isn't that our job? They don't need to articulate. We'll articulate it for them. You know, we're right. we're not just there to describe what's happening. We want them to, to understand from our descriptions the technical aspects of the wrestling, but we want to guide them in a way to approach the match too. We want to elevate everything that's going on out there and use us being the guys who, who know, you know, front to back, sideways, everything about wrestling to then use that knowledge to help craft that match in the best way we can to, to protect the guys in the ring, to make them seem as strong as possible and to get the, the marks, the fans to really, they to, to get the best experience out of it so they can bite down on it and, 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 and really appreciate what's going on. I was doing some historic shows recently and one of them was on Andre and I'm sorry, Elna Hogan and Savage. And mm-hmm. it was a really well put together storyline of, you know, the, the jealousy over Miss Elizabeth and mm-hmm. Hogan mm-hmm. grab her. Did he not grab her? Was he protecting her? Did he go overboard? People understand that. Well, Savage was, you know, cutting a very colorful promos about, I see the jealousy in your eyes, all mm-hmm. this stuff. The guy telling the story was Gorilla Monsoon because Hogan wasn't saying anything. And that's what, people uh. bring, that's what people that were the television people brought up was the one who was able to make the story was Gorilla Monsoon because he was the one able to articulate Hogan's story, but Hogan didn't do anything wrong. Hogan did this. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the commentary, if done right, so greatly can enhance the whole storyline and the whole match. Oh, very much so. Commentary can make or break something. And uh, I think it. Uh, people get the wrong idea about what commentary is supposed to be, and it ain't easy. It is mentally exhausting. Um uh, Sometimes you think you're going to be on and you can't find the the speed or the eloquation to, to deliver the, your, your best. But uh, at the end of the day, man, we're there as commentators to to not necessarily to, to, to paint the picture itself, but to help make it as, as vibrant and as understandable as possible and to give someone uh, a setting for why they're looking at this and what it means. Yeah, I, I, I love doing commentary, but uh, I'm not going to say it's not hard. I don't care how many matches I've done. I don't care how a good a job I, I may have been considered at any point. It's tough. And you know, it's, uh, yeah. But you have one a huge advantage of the fact that you've had so much history in combat sports, in every type of discipline of combat sports, and been very successful at it, so people trust your knowledge in it. You know, a lot of young commentators that don't have that, it's tough on them. But, you know, and I tried to tell them to said, you know, instead of you saying, say, well, somebody said or quote somebody saying mm-hmm. you have that advantage of being able to refer to that and say, well, this I saw this with the the judo throws. I saw this with mm-hmm. catch. You're able to bring in so many things from that bag of, of knowledge that so many people can't. That's an advantage that you can't teach. Uh, no, and it's true. And it's also another good reason why if if people are, are able to you know craft any promotions or organizations in such a way 
to, to really think about why the old ways were the old ways and why were they so many, why were they the old ways for so long? And that is <laughs> yeah. the, the, the commentator needs to know how to wrestle. Like the referees cut it. Everybody needs to understand what's going on in there. So then they can take their, their part of that and deliver it in the way that they need to, to the audience that's out there watching it. And I, it does, I have a great advantage with all the time I've spent uh, fighting, training, developing, learning all these, these things. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, I'm sitting down with, uh, be it JR, Morrow, whoever, I'm letting them teach me along the way as we're going, seeing, picking up on things that how they deliver, how they, how they ping pong back with me, how they set me up for stuff when they lay out, um, and then talking to them in these gaps and just trying to, you know, it's not even a matter of like, how good or or whatever you want to compare one against the other about any commentator. It's about knowing that these commentators are themselves. They have their own style. They have their own approach. They have their own vision towards what they see. Figure that out. Maybe, maybe there's something in there that one guy's got that another doesn't have, and it's not better or worse. It just resonates and, and works for what you do. And, uh, you know, find that, that way to be better about giving that information to the audience and, uh, and helping them digest it. And, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned about the experience side of things. This is what I say to shooters when they go into working. Don't go into working as a shooter. If they know you're a shooter, they already know you're legit. You don't got to get them to believe when you do a punch or you hit an elbow or you slam someone or take them down or put a submission. They know they already believe everything you do. You go out there and try to pro wrestle in a very like uh, hyperbolic kind of uh a stereotypical way what you might think it is it ruins everything you're trying to do because now you're out there running around hitting rope like i thought this guy's a shooter why is he why is he doing it like this that and, and then they end up because if they're shooting and they throw a kick well, they got confident they're shooting and they hit a double leg get a half and turn them over and stack them up they believe that they know that in their heart as the worker but if they're out there and they've never really thrown drop kicks and they're out there trying to you know, do the international and, and then hit it, all this different stuff. You're like, okay, but like, uh, you don't believe it. So why are they going to believe it? Right. Josh, uh, I agree with you hundred percent, you know, on, on a shooter that I, I run into so many of them that, you know, they're shooters and they know what we're doing as a work out there. And so they go out and they try to try to make it a work themselves instead of trying mm -hmm. to uh, try to have the intensity of, of trying to make people believe that it's not it, yes. it, if you go in as a shooter knowing it's a business you you got to step up on on all the other shooters that that that, that don't think it's a business because mm -hmm. once you realize what we're trying to do which is to draw money and draw crowds mm -hmm. then, then you got to step up on all these guys well I'm, I'm a shooter i could take this guy down sure you could take him down anytime you yeah. want but what's it accomplish? What what kind of money are you gonna make off of that? So, you know, once, once you realize it's a business and and nothing out there, what you do out there doesn't really matter how you, how you look or what the outcome is. I think that was one of my brother's main advantages that he always had. He realized right from the very get go that it's a business. I'm out there. I know I what I can do to these guys if I want to, but I don't want to. I want to make some money. And once you get that in your mind, then you're on an on a entirely different path than 70% and of these shooters that mm -hmm. go out and go come into our business. Yeah. And you can try to smarten a guy up. I mean, that's our job. If, if, we're, yeah. if we're the vets, we're supposed to smarten people up. But it's for, and it's for their own benefit. But you can't, can't make them understand what you're giving them. You know, you can't make them smart. You, you can only offer them the opportunity. And uh, 
you know, to, and to that, think about what, what wrestling used to be like when you guys were getting in. Everybody either was a shooter of some sort, and that didn't mean necessarily just like, oh, they were all an amateur wrestler, or they were already a boxer. Or there were also guys who came in, like the, let's say the Warriors. They weren't shooters and like, you know, uh, classically trained in some sort of particular combat sport. They were dudes that got into street fights and yeah, fought yeah. people in the doors and all this kind of stuff. That's so, a shooter. <laughs> or Dick Slater. Like, no, yeah. you, that guy, I don't care what it doesn't matter what certificates are hanging on the wall. You don't want to fight that dude. I'm telling you because he's for real. Yeah. And, and it was up here at old guy type of guys too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when, when you're watching these guys in the ring, everybody knows that this guy isn't to be messed with. You know, everybody in that ring is a shooter of some sort and you know, it all responds the same. And, you know, uh, that's a, such great advice you give the guys about don't be throwing drop kicks and things that, you know, are pro wrestling type moves if you can't do it well, because guys, mm -hmm. there are guys out there that can do it very well. And if you're a shooter, especially if you're on some like national level, or in your case, a world champion, there's no reason to try to compete, compete with guys, in pro wrestling moves. You've mm -hmm. you're different. And if yes. you to be all the same, yeah. that doesn't draw money. Be, be what is true to you and create something different in that ring. And all of a sudden now people, when they see you, they go, that's an attraction. That's somebody. Yes. To watch. Look, you're preaching, you're preaching right now. I mean, that is, that is the Holy gospel of professional wrestling right there. And it's the same conversation I had to have with Shayna Baszler early on, because I've, I've got her working these, these indies early in her career. And, uh, and hell that just came from a conversation. I knew she was kind of winding down with the shooting. And I said, well, look, I know you're really, really into pro wrestling and you've really been getting more involved and you really like watching it. And you, this is a, a thing that's really passionate to you. You want to start working. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do that. I go, okay, well then uh, we're going to keep training generally as normal, but now we're I'm going to start adding all these, these workouts around working and we're going to start developing you as a worker as well as a shooter. And we're going to blend these things two together. But when she gets in into the, the market, you know, she starts having these promoters tell her to wear MMA gloves to the ring and do all this stuff. And I'm like, well, okay, but everybody already knows you're a shooter. You don't have to wear gloves and you don't have to do this. You don't have to, they already know that if you're wearing those gloves and you're not punching people in the face and knocking them out, which look, if that's, if you're going to do that on out there when your matches, you can, that's takes a lot more effort to learn how to do that. It's a little trickier and let alone, Man, I don't know if these girls are going to want you socking them in the face, but uh, if you're hitting them and they ain't going down, well, it just makes you look bad. And you don't have to, you don't have to try and get people to believe what you do. You grab that girl's wrist; that it has way more impact when you do it than when a lot of these other girls do, because these other gals who aren't known as shooters, who they don't already have that background that people know about to believe. They're trying to get you to believe that practically the main thing that these wrestlers, when they're starting out trying to do is get you in the audience to believe that what they do matters. You don't have that problem. And it took her a little bit. And then eventually she's like, I get it. You know, I get it. And I was like, no, it's, it's tough because you're going to feel like, like you're the one heretic everywhere around all these people in this locker room right now. And they're all telling you and everybody's wrestling the same way and doing all this. Like, no, I'm telling you, Shana, it's it's not even their fault. Like, right. who's training a lot of these people these days? It, 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 it's just things have been 
lost and uh, along the way. And it's okay, but it's part of our job to try and bring that back. It's not, it's not against them. It's not to be diminishing. It's just that if they don't understand how they can get a lot more out of a lot less, then, you know, it, it's not their fault, but, you know, let's try and do our best to lead by example. You know, Jonathan, that's important because when we first brought Brock, uh, Brock Lesnar and Sheldon Benjamin, they, they came in at basically the same time. Both of them fantastic shooters. Both of them fantastic amateur wrestlers. Brock, a national champion. Uh, Sheldon, uh, Division Two and junior college mm-hmm. national champion. So they had to deal. They had all the pedigree behind them. When Brock came in and Sheldon came in, we allowed Sheldon to do a little bit more pro style because he was he was such a, uh, a more versatile athlete not taking anything away from Brock because he's a great athlete but Sheldon had that had that agility and that ability where Brock was the big monster guys when Brock first come in we, we just had him doing run-ins on guys mm-hmm. we'd run in a double leg guy and just take him up and slam him you know simple double leg or do a farmer's carry it and over to a and, and develop into his f5 finish there but just those impressionist moves that we had Brock doing, all of a sudden the audience, our audience is looking, holy cow, this guy is unbeatable. Or we'd have Sheldon coming in where he could do a pitcher-perfect drop kick, you know, where, where Brock couldn't do that. So they were entirely two different training methods, mm-hmm. but Brock was a power guy. So you're right, they don't have to come in and and, and make it a professional wrestling match in, in the beginning until, until they get used to it. Yeah, and, you know, a match is a match. A match is... Two guys going at it, let's say, uh, seeing who's who can better the other. And they're trying to win by pin, submission, or uh, you know maybe knockout. Although that doesn't usually get used very often, but it's within the rules, yeah, which people yeah. still forget there are rules. Right. Uh, biggest biggest culprit of that is the referees. It's like the referees, man. You know, I'll, I'll doesn't matter where I work. They they come up to me and they're like, okay, okay, what well, what are we doing? I go, uh, someone will tap out. Or someone will someone will be knocked out or pinned. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, how long? I'll give them a time, roughly, and then I go. Well, I'll see you out there. Like, uh, <laughs> like I, I don't have one. I don't have a match to give you because I don't want to make one. I just right. want to go out there and and work. And so I'm not going to give you this this uh, this entire choreography to because uh, it, it don't exist. And if I can do, if I got a guy that I can work that with. I'm I'm gonna call it in the ring. Uh, we you know we'll we'll have a kind of an idea about the like the feeling we want the match to have, but that's it. We're just gonna tell a story, go out there, work a match, and uh, and trust. One of us is gonna be pinned or submitted or knocked out or whatever, and you'll know it because as you're <laughs> counting them, they won't get up. Uh, their shoulders will stay down or they'll tap. It'll be it'll be completely abundant. It'll be so simple. But do me a favor. You treat this as a shoot, and if one of us don't get our shoulders up, we lost. If if we don't let go of that rope on four, DQ us. You know, don't don't break the rules. Don't fudge refereeing because you don't you think that the result has to be some particular way. No, that's our job. We'll take care of it. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you break, if you break that, you 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 break all the kayfabe of the match. You show that. Uh, it's really not about what's happening in the ring. It's only about getting to a, a particular finish, and, yeah. and and that does a disservice to the whole thing. Yeah, sure. Now, Josh, tell us a little bit about your transition. When when 
when when you transitioned from football player, where was it, Montana or somewhere like that? No, I uh, I was playing football in high school, and I really wanted to play college football uh, or college wrestling. Um, I had an offer from Oklahoma to come down, and they're like, "Well, we don't have any scholarships at the moment, but if you come and you wrestle for us, I'm pretty sure we can get you one." And and you know, the wrestling programs are are far less funded than pretty much anything else in yeah. college. You know, even though it's probably the cheapest sport to run and you can run it for both men and women if you want. But uh, that's doesn't seem to really make a, a factor in, in terms of how some of these athletic directors uh, are looking at it. But uh, I'm just like, man, I don't I don't know. Go to Oklahoma. I just didn't really know what I was doing. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll play football for University of Montana. And I had offers to do track and field. I had offers to play football for Cornell and University of Chicago and these other places, uh, Cornell and Chicago, I was like, oh, my God, I, I may have qualified to get into this school on grades, but uh, can I actually keep up? I mean, these these schools are full of some real smart cookies. And, uh, you know, Cornell's Ivy League, I'm not sure. But uh, I ended up at Montana, and, and then uh, and I just was like, you know what, forget football. I just want to be a fighter at the end of the day anyways. This is this was going to be my ultimate goal. This, in my mind, was the thing I could do. It was just the greatest athletic endeavor that i could compete in you know was, you, was, else... was ufc really gaining traction at that time or were, were they still in the infancy yeah i mean this was around 1996 so this is probably like ufc 15 okay. maybe something like that uh and i've been watching it since just about the very beginning at least since ufc 2 which is what i saw on a tape which it showed me that there was holy crap this is something you could do uh and gave me that inspiration and that set that seed in my mind. Like there ain't nothing in the world that I could do that would be a greater athletic competition than this, man. You just, you just, it's not, I'm not hitting a ball with somebody. I'm not, uh, I don't have a whole team behind me. I'm not trying to beat a time. I can literally go out there and do everything I can to ruin this guy's ability to perform and vice versa. You know, if you're just thinking about competing in a game, but ultimately, no, I get to fight. And to me, it was all sports were just kind of a watered down version of war of some sort. And uh, to me, this was getting closest to it. And I thought that's, that's where I belong. This is what is most in my heart. And this is what I belong to do. This is what I'm made for. And, you know, it turns out I, was somewhat right, I guess, and uh, somewhat yeah. uh, kept kept going. And then uh, I was always a huge pro wrestling fan too, so right. there was always this feeling about professional wrestling around what I was doing. And then when I got the chance to to actually become a worker, I I leapt at it. I didn't entirely know what it was going to take, but I just figured I could make it happen. How, how did that How did that come about? Well, strangely enough, and I think I must have mentioned this before a few places, but. Uh, I don't ever see it mentioned, so I'll, I'll mention it again on your podcast here, and uh, you can you, people can say I, I, this is an exclusive. But uh, first time I was offered a match was against Shinya Hashimoto in Japan, but this was like the original Wrestle One, I think, or, or something. It was uh, it wasn't Zero One, I believe, but it was a the big put together match, and I was in the UFC at the time, and. Uh, Joe Silva, I had to hit him up, the matchmaker, go, hey, man, I got this offer for Hashimoto. What do you think? And, he, and they're like, well, we we don't want you going out there and, and jobbing to this guy. And I go, you know, it's Hashimoto. And so in all respects, like, I should job to him. But the only reason I also agree with you, and I thought of it like this, 
nobody thinks I'm going to beat Hashimoto, right? Like, so me just going out there and jobbing to him, is just another guy. Job- and Hashimoto was on this huge winning streak. Like nobody, everybody was jobbing to him. So I'm like, yeah. you know, it doesn't really, I don't know that it's really even going to move the needle that much. Uh, even though, I mean, you know, the, the company said, Hey, nah, we don't want you to do it. But even then in my head, I'm like, Hashimoto is amazing. He's a legend, but at that time, it just, it didn't have any, the, the matches you want are the ones where the people are like, I don't know who's going to win. Right. You know, they want it to, to believe like, other than like, Oh, I just know this is going to be a match. And at some point Hashimoto will hit his finish and it'll be over. Doesn't have the same kind of impact. And, uh, and after that, I, you know, it wasn't as if I didn't want to, I still wanted to find a way into it. I just really wasn't sure. And I saw an old training partner of mine, Siyoshi Kosaka, TK, who is a, a rings guy. And then he was fighting in the UFC and MMA. I saw he was doing these matches for New Japan. And they were doing this, reviving this NWF belt and all this. And I, I reach out to TK and I go, hey, man, can you get me? Uh, a conversation with New Japan Pro Wrestling. I want to do this. I would love to be in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And they, he goes, okay, yeah, I'll uh, I'll tell them that you you want it. You're interested. And all of a sudden, New Japan's writing me back. They're like, hey, come down to the Enoki Dojo in Santa Monica. Come do that. Blah 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 blah. And I meet um, uh, I meet Eugene Nagata. We move around a little bit. We train. Uh, I meet with their with their office guys and they hand me a contract They're like, no, we're we're serious. We'll bring you in. Um, this contract is contingent. So if we'll bring you in for this match and we'll give you a, a tour. But if things don't work out, you know, this is your downside. This is the minimum. But if it's good, it could go to this. I said, fair enough. And uh, that first. Uh, OK, that first match is here. Come in and uh, work Nagata at the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> like. Uh, for the IWGP heavyweight title in front of, I don't know, 50,000 people. It's like, uh, yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I get there, me and Nagata work out uh, for like a couple days in a row. That's it. Like we didn't, we did have to construct the match because, man, I couldn't go out there and just, just work like that. I didn't have that kind of experience. But, uh, but I was already thinking about storylines and things. And I'm like, well, you know, that Crow Cop fight had happened not that long ago. Well, I want to come out and I want to start this match off and move around a little bit. And I want to hit a switch left high kick on you and drop you. But I want you to actually beat the count this time. And then you come back. And so I'm already thinking about what may be in people's heads in terms of Nagata and MMA. I want to find, you know, whether how effective it was or not, but a way to like have him overcome a difficulty in his own past and then overcome it and, and go past it. And thinking about, well, how do I how do I interact with in, with Nagata in this match? It shows me, but also elevates him. And I I just went out there, we did our thing, and then they brought me on tour, teamed me up with uh, Perry Saturn to help show me the ropes. And you know, first match on tour, tag match. I, I'm going over on Tenzan and Tenzan and Chono. And I'm like, whoa, this is nuts. You know, <laughs> this is absolutely nuts. Uh, uh, first guy I ever wrestled with Vaseline on was Chono. That was a new one. <laughs> you know, I lock up with him. We do some, we do a little bit. I tag out and I go over to the ropes and I wipe my hand down the ropes to try and get all the Vaseline off. Uh, first, uh, first time I ever took a Yakuza kick and the first one hits me with his big old boot in the top of the chest. And I'm just like, good God, that is awful. <laughs> and the next one, and they're just like, yeah, turn head, turn heads. So whack. <laughs> like, Oh my bad. And then he puts me in an SDF, which I'm supposed to get a rope break on. I'm all, 
yeah, 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 sure, that's fine. And in the match, Choto, Choto, 6'5", whatever, 6'4", 240 pounds. He's got that STF in it. You know, he ain't trying to stretch me, but now I'm trying to drag all of us. I'm 250. He's 240. And I'm just like, oh, we're stuck on this canvas. Uh, now I wish I had that Vaseline to grease my way over to that because it felt like that rope was miles away. Like I was never going to get there. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, oh, oh. Uh, it's trying to get over to that thing and uh ah, i mean it was it was a great experience but then the chance to learn to really work was all that time on the road okay from match to match um all these guys are there and i tell these workers like okay uh a lot of these guys i'll, I'll work with will, will be in will run in new japan and they'll be on these tours with minoru suzuki uh uh, amazing catch wrestling legend and a, a, a former open weight king of pancreas and you know gotch trained and oki trained he, he's the real deal i tell these kids go talk to him go ask him to show you stuff go you know these guys are more than willing if you approach them the right way to help you out and the reason i was able to learn any of the great things that i learned is not just because i had people like anoki and billy robinson and even being able to work with Carl some, it was being there every day with Perry Saturn. Then Mike Barton wants to work with me. And then, you know, Christopher Daniels is showing me something. And then uh, Chono sees me running, trying to figure out how to run ropes. So he comes in, he, he gives me the breakdown on that. And Liger's like, oh, look, man, your selling's all right, but we need to work on how to keep your head up and do this. And, and Nagata's in there. It, it, and all these people are willing because – I show up, I say, look, man, all that shooting stuff is great, but just teach me uh, as if I don't know anything. Like I'm here to, to learn from you, your way, your style. And hell, the, the guy, the way I shoot a guy off the ropes, which I can and I do do sometimes. Uh, Perry Saturn taught me how to do that. And I just learned, I just learned. And from all these guys who, in my mind, especially back then, are way better than me, way more experienced. And, and I just gonna going to soak it in. Talk about baptism by fire, though. I mean, you had this incredible history outside yeah. of wrestling, but that is – you were thrown in the deep water. Yeah, and that's, that's a fact. And uh, I knew it at the time, but I didn't really focus on it. I just focused on, look, I didn't know what it was going to take to be a UFC champion, and I found a way to make it happen. I, I, I trusted in myself, and I, I, I stayed to the path, and I made my alterations where I need be, and I went after it. Uh, why can't I do this, you know, at least – when it comes to like, like moves, moves are moves. Moves are the easiest thing to learn in wrestling. That is so simple. It's not even funny. I, I, I was telling a kid I'm breaking in right now uh, who's a shooter. He's got a collegiate wrestling background, good-sized kid. Uh, I just took him over to England for the Catch Wrestling World Championships. He won that over there. Uh, he's got a good upside to him. But I'm just like, look, man, uh, moves are, are easy. And most of these like tryout things – aren't really to see, aren't really to teach you move so much is to, do you, do you have two left feet or do you actually have some agility? You have some coordination. Can you take instruction? If I may, if I tell you, you got to alter that. Okay. Now, when you jump up, I want you to turn when you jump up. Oh, oh, can you do, can you do at least that much? Did you show up in shape or do you not take this seriously? Right. You know, it's like, they're not really in there to try and teach you how to bump and roll so much. They're trying to actually see, does this guy actually care? Is, is he going to take this seriously? And is he even capable of being taught? Does he have a, a, a at least a minimum level of athleticism? He can move this son of a bitch around the ring. 
You mentioned uh, overcoming different stuff in the UFC. Uh, you had Couture in that big uh, fight yeah. championship, but you also before that you had a six foot ten and a seven foot guy. You're a tall guy. That's huge, though. <laughs> yeah, how, no, how, I know. How, how was that different training for a guy that is seven foot tall? Well, you ever remember being a kid and getting the crap kicked out of your bike, your uncle, your dad, or something playing around? <laughs> yeah, it felt like that. Like I'm four years old again. I'm just like. <laughs> Can I have a cookie or what? You know, it. Uh, you just you got to make your adaptations. And the thing is, like, where do you? How do you train for that? And one of the things we did do was we had these like foam bats, uh, square, and they're these martial arts tools that um, uh, they'll sell for like the Taekwondo classes and different stuff for kids to play with. And well, we had one guy uh with those and he's he's using them to simulate excuse me simulate the extra reach and uh you know it's not perfect but it's an idea of thinking like okay when normally where you would think that you're out of distance you're not right now and this guy loves his front kick and he's built almost all legs so he might seem a certain distance from you but that leg of his especially when he puts his hip into it now he's going to give it another six seven inches worth of distance that foot is probably, you know, 15, 17, who knows? All of that is going to factor in on how far he's going to be able to reach out and touch you with that foot. So you got to make those adjustments. You got to be on your on your toes. You got to have your eyes up and you got to be looking at the small things, you know, watching his hip movement, watching where he's looking, watching his shoulders before before you, you can really fully know where you need to be and what and what that next you know movement's going to be. But, uh, you know. I also tell all the kids that are workers or want to work. I go, yeah, you should do some kickboxing, some boxing, whatever. Cause you, when you're in that ring working with somebody, nothing changed. If you really want to be a good worker, you need to be able to look at a guy's shoulder and know what's coming next. You'd be able to look at his feet and how they're set up. will tell you what's available and what he's going to go for and how to know when he grabs you when he does this, when he's moving in this direction, what are you set up for? And, and if I know that, that also makes you better at selling it. If I want to make your lariat look the biggest and baddest, I need to understand what it's like and what the distance is so that I can best appropriately sell for it. Was was your game plan to go in there and just take what they get, he gave you and talk about the two big guys, or did you have a certain game plan thinking, I, well, I can catch him in this submission? Well, between those two, the six foot 10 guy was an all American wrestler and he was 312 pounds. So for him, it was to try and keep it on the feet, but he got me on, he got me on bottom. And I thought, well, I'll use my scissor on bottom, my guard to try and manipulate him here and keep, but, it was like being attacked by an iceberg, big, white, and slow. And he just moved his way through and got on top into that mount, that, that saddle position. That's the like, first oh. I've ever heard that. That is excellent. Oh, 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 man. And now he's trying to kill me. He's, he's, he's saddled on top of me, and I'm just dodging and hand fighting and blocking. Like, good God. <laughs> you know, this first round is tough. Then come out in the second round, I hit him with one liver shot, and we're fighting, and and he gets me back to the floor, but now I'm going to my submission stuff. And I'm I'm just basically with that fight against Gam McGee, it was start getting him working behind me. And now once he starts working behind me, if he falls behind far enough, that's it. I'm dictating and I'm, I'm pushing him into his own doom. With Semi Schilt being this killer striker, with him, it was get him off his get him off his feet. Make sure that and, and don't be in his guard either, because he's got seven foot tall legs. So I. I don't want to have to deal with that so much. So do my best, try and navigate that and, and settle into his, his, his chest and his upper body and try to isolate one of those arms. 
that match had to go a lot quicker than I had intended because I got that takedown early on, caught a kick, off balanced him, uh, came through on a single, and he, he fell to his butt. I immediately get on top. I'm in great position, put my knee on his belly. I'm looking to I have his arm gift wrapped around his neck, you know, like uh, would have been the perfect photo uh, photo op-, op if I was, you know, giving him a couple rights. But uh, he managed to score him out of that. And I imagine as a seven foot tall guy can. So I drop into that side control. And as I did so, he just flipped the little elbow, caught me in the side of the eyebrow and it opened up. And now I don't know how bad it is, but it is it is bleeding pretty seriously. And I'm just going, oh, crap. The last thing I need is for this fight to get stopped in between rounds or maybe even while this fight's going. I I, I don't, uh, you know, that would be an awful way to lose this match, especially when I feel like it's all going my way. So then I just had to hustle, hustle, hustle. I'm dropping elbows and punches. I'm really picking the pace up. I get mounted on him. I'm cracking him. I'm busting his nose. But I am I can feel, I can see the blood dripping on his face. It's coming down my foot, the side of my head. Like, uh-oh. Then I pivot off for an arm bar. One of my feet gets stuck underneath him as I did it. So now he rolls up on top. Like, okay, well, now he's on top of me. Now he's gushing all over me. He's running down my leg, hit me on the face. And I, I got to get this arm. I got it locked up. I got to make this thing happen because who knows, man, the doctor comes in, he goes, no, fight's over. So I I figured this was my one and only shot to get, to get this guy out of here and uh, caught in on his elbow, got to his wrist, started stretching it out. He wanted to try and fight and punch out of it, but I had that thing locked up tight and he angled his elbow, but it didn't do him any good because it was still uh, bent and I was still levering against it kind of sideways instead of straight on. And it just felt like a wet towel ripping. And then eventually he falls over in this massively dramatic way, which is kind of cool, you know, and he's tapping like out. A giant, like a giant tumbling over. Yeah, no, it was, it was the best sell I could have got. Best sell I could have got, yeah. You mentioned uh, Billy Robinson and Ketch and, and Carl Gotch, who used to be uh, Mr. Briscoe's neighbor down in Florida, by the way. Uh, did, did you ever oh, was that when uh, – was that when Carl was living in the uh, the small apartment after his? Uh, his oh, he lived at uh, the lake at the lake house out. out okay, here North, yeah, North yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned the neighbors. I asked you about the screaming coming out, right, Jerry? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I had you know the, the lake neighborhood out there. So we were at a civic uh, uh, meeting, and uh, one of one of the guys come up to me. I think he was an attorney. He said, "He said I don't know. I live next door to this guy, Carl Gotch. You know Carl?" I said, "Yeah, I know Carl. He's kind of, <laughs> kind of strange." And he said, "Strange, didn't he?" He said, "I got to ask you a question, though, Briscoe." He said, "My wife and I are sitting there watching TV." He said, "He always has a, a crew of Japanese kids out there, and they, mm-hmm. he said sometimes late at night I hear those kids screaming out there." Like he's torturing them. <laughs> what the hell is he doing? I said he's torturing them, but he's not torturing them <laughs> in a way that you might think he's torturing them. He's wrestling them. He's doing what? I said he's wrestling. He said I've te- I've been tempted to call the cops several times. And he said, but I've talked to Carl, and he's such a nice guy. So I know he's not not a bad guy. But I just had to know from my mind what the hell is he doing to those kids out there. Yeah, he had the neighbors scared to death. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, uh, he, maybe he needed a basement like the Heart Dungeon, so you could hide he, all that. He, all he that did, but he had he had a detached garage where he had the bag yep. hanging and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I neighbors know neighbors could get a peek of it, but they couldn't. They never went inside. <laughs> yeah, I'd seen. Uh, there's videos of uh, the old Pancras guys, or when they were in New yeah. Japan. It didn't matter, you know. But the the Japanese kids. 
going and training under Carl and I've seen the videos and uh, that was how I got introduced to swinging the mace and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I remember those, all that, all that footage pretty fondly. You know, I, I didn't uh, get the pleasure of getting the, the, the crap stretched out of me by Carl. In fact, for me, it was more, was more along the lines of Carl approaching me like, okay, this nice enough, whatever, you know, but, but who is this guy? Is he full of himself? Is he an asshole? Is he this? You know how? You know what? What's his? What's his attitude towards a things? A little bit of the above on all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well. Anyway, so I'm here with uh, with this Japanese press crew. They show him a fight of mine. It was a pretty big deal. Uh, beat their uh, former champ and all this stuff. And uh, uh, Carl is watching it, and he and they and they they wanted him to watch it and give his opinion. Well, it's Carl, so he's like, "Why are you on your back? You know, why are you in the horse position?" And you know, this different stuff. And I'm just like, "Okay." He's like, "Well, that was shit. You shouldn't have done that." And he's going over, and the and the Japanese uh, press is just. Like they're just oh what the oh and I, we did not think it was gonna go like this. I'm listening and watching. And I remember they get done and it's just quiet. Like everybody, well, the people around are just like beside. They just don't even know what to think. And Carl, he just looks at me and that that kind of wry grin, that little look, and he's like, "So what I say? That piss you off?" And I looked at him and I go, "No." That didn't make me mad. That didn't piss me off at all. Uh, I'm here to learn what you have to say about things, not to come here with the way I already think about stuff. And if whatever you have to say, however it's said, if that's the thing that's going to make me that much better, then I'm, I'm here for it. You know, I, I'm not here to tell you anything. I'm here to listen. And he just kind of shook his head. Well, all right. And then it wasn't long after that where he's teaching. He's like, you know, you know how to do push-ups. So he brings out the board and I show him my Hindu push-ups yeah. and I show him this and I should, he's giving me, okay, but I want you to do this on it. And then it's, you know, how do you, do you know, clock head scissor? Oh yeah. I love clock head scissor. I, show it to me. And I demo it on one of the guys there. And then he goes, okay, I want you to do this instead. And this is and now Carl's like, all right, this, this, this guy ain't a piece of shit. He's all right. You know, and I got yeah. to, got to train with him a little bit and we would talk on the phone. He, I still have drills and warm-ups and stuff that he gave me that I, I wrote down and uh, I still use. I still put people through and, uh, you know, I, I wish I had spent more time with him uh, before he passed. But, uh, you know, I, I guess isn't that kind of always the case? Like I, I got to spend did. years under Billy Robinson, but I still wish I had more. Yeah. yeah. I were calling Carl before we go to Billy. Billy is a good friend of mine too, but I, I helped coach a high school wrestling team down, down the street from where both Carl and I live. So, one day, uh, I always brought guys in for like Kurt Angles, Brock Lesnar, mm -hmm. Sheldon Benjamin, Charlie Hosses, and Jake Hagers, all all the guys that wrestled in college. That that was their kind of payback to me for helping them helping them get in the business. They had to come down and put on a clinic for me. So I started thinking one day, you know, Gosh lives right down the right down the street. He's unique in his styles and everything. I'm gonna ask him. I've never been more terrified after I asked a guy to come in <laughs> and teach my kids how to do something. I, I, I go home that night after I, Bristol, what'd you get yourself into? And I, I saw so the, the next day I call Carl and I'm going to pick him up and I say, Carl, okay, I'm going to come down, but please don't hurt anybody. He said, no, I'm just, but I was worried that his hard workout, but he came in, he brought, he brought his bag of tools with him, you know, the, the boards and all that stuff. 
and there was some of the stuff, the exercises, the stretching, some of the, some of the we they the coach still is still the same coach. He still incorporates a lot of that into a today's workout, and I, I'll always be appreciative of Carl for coming down. And I never seen Carl smile so much in all of his life, helping these 15, 16, 17 year old kid, you know, uh, achieve a lot of stuff. But yeah. I'll, I'll forever hold that, uh, be grateful for him doing that. Yeah, Carl, Carl was a great man. And I know people like think of him as a curmudgeon and, you know, difficult, but he just had zero tolerance for BS. He zero. just hated <laughs> it, hated it, hated it. And well, that, uh, that's one thing he told me, too. He said, as long as they're attentive and they're trying to learn, he said, I'm not going to say anything to them. But if I get a guy in there that's kind of kind of not paying attention, he said, I will. I will discipline. I said, you have my permission to do that. Yeah. Well, that, that's uh, you get hit with the cane with Billy. If that was the case, he smacked yeah. you with the cane. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience with Billy. How did you get hooked up with Billy? Uh, you know, I was over in Japan. And I was pretty much living there um, most of the time. And was that uh, when you're fighting for Pancras? Uh, yes. Well, I, I was. Well, uh, I was still doing shoots while doing tours with New Japan Pro Wrestling, and I would train on the road. I would, uh, if we were doing arenas, I'd run the steps of every place, uh, run the steps of every arena, do sprints. I'd train, I'd do Greco stuff with Nagata. I'd train with Nakanishi on wrestling and whoever else I get, uh, uh, Toru Yano, who was like a multiple time university heavyweight wrestling champ. Uh, I'd do some shoot stuff with like guys like, um, uh, Nagai and these other shoot guys that came from rings or Pancrase that were working like the Makai club had a lot of shooter guys in it. And I'd get all my workouts in and then I'd have a couple weeks or two or three weeks after tour was over. So I'd train, do tour, train on tour. Then afterwards, I'd train with like Kosaka at his gym. or And then Tayama, the referee at New Japan at the time, he goes, hey, you know, well, Billy Robinson's down here at the Snake Pit. And I'd been to the Snake Pit before to see Miyato-san. And he goes, well, Billy wasn't there at the time I'd, I'd been coming over. So then he was back and, and, and living in Japan. So... I went over there and, you know, first thing Billy just basically wanted to do was see who, see what I was about. So he yeah. had me wrestling his guys and uh, he's like, all right, this, this kid's cool. And, and, uh, I just would just keep coming and sh training, showing up to work under Billy and, um, uh, his kid Hideki Suzuki, who is you know, now a really great worker in Japan right now. Um, you know, he had me wrestle him as in a shoot just to see where Suzuki was at and and to see how I deal with it and and then I started working with I still train Hideki Suzuki whenever I get a chance he's a great hand killer you know he's he is a he's a great 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 guy great worker um but uh it just became Billy was just a coach you know I was there day in and day out taking everything that he was willing to give me and help me with and uh, and he realized that I was a guy that already had a, a fully developed style of, of fighting and wrestling and submission holds he's just adding tweaks changing little things and sometimes one little one little adaptation made what i was doing you know, that much greater that stronger than i had ever considered or there ways about thinking about stuff so uh you know it was you don't realize what you got until it's gone and i was always incredibly thankful and and felt lucky and privileged to, to be able to say that billy robinson was my coach but uh you know now that i'm working and promoting and building guys up and yeah part of me is like you know i wish uh you know i don't have billy around to, to yeah. see this to help with that and to, to be a part of it and yeah you know it's uh and that way it makes me pretty sad but uh but i also have a belief that as long as 
when I'm out there doing these things and I'm, whether I'm working in the ring or I'm teaching people or I'm running a promotion and I'm booking and putting these things together, Billy's helping me. Anoki's helping me. God, they're all there because they put their effort into me and I carry it with them. So what I do, I do because of their influence. So they don't, they don't ever disappear. So when you're watching Bloodsport in to, to small and great ways, you're seeing Billy Robinson, Carl Gotch, and Antonio Inoki being expressed in there in one way or another. Sometimes great athletes are not great coaches. You know, I don't know if True. Michael Jordan, I don't know if Michael Jordan would have been a great coach or not. He's great at everything else he's done, but uh, you know, you don't know because just because they're good at the sport does not mean they can articulate what their greatness is to other people. Billy and, and Carl and, and Antonio Noki, three of the greatest of all time. And you're talking about the greatest shooters, and everybody talks about mm-hmm. Gotch Robinson, you know, the, the famous wig and snake, snake pit. How were they as coaches? Were they able to articulate what their knowledge base was to you and be able to make it simple enough? You know, sometimes making trigonometry into simple math is, a, is an art that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, coaching coaching is an art form. And there are people that are great coaches. There are people that are great athletes. And our rarity, you got one that's both. Um, I thought they were phenomenal coaches. And um maybe maybe that's due to my own disposition and my own already established skill set so when they would show me something i already either knew it or knew a version of it but the other thing was is that i like like i think what convinced or maybe made carl believe i was worth working with was I wasn't there to try and be like, well, I do it this way or uh, to ask like 10,000 questions before I've even been working with this hold long enough to ask the best question that would be worth his time in the first place. So I just opened myself up to him. Hey, hey, teach me. And uh, I think that attitude is why I was lucky enough to not just have, I mean, look, how many times have you guys taken somebody, you see a kid, see someone he's green and you go to, to, to help him out a little bit, but you know, the attitude maybe ain't quite right or something. And then you're like, yeah, I help you once. Right. There's not a second, right. a third. Right? right. And, and, and maybe to them, they don't even, they don't even register that that has happened and they don't think, Oh, oh what's up with that? They say, Oh, maybe he just, you know, forgot or got, they don't, they don't ever think that maybe it was me that caused it to be one interaction and not 10. And I feel like maybe having the right attitude is why a Chono would keep working with me and keep working with me. And, and, you know, stuff like I'm a 24 year old kid and new Japan pro wrestling. And and, and at times I'd have someone like Chono going, Hey, we're going to get into this exchange on the floor. What would you do? And I'm teaching these guys. I just like, that's blowing my mind. What I'm teaching you something like you, you're the man. I'm just some kid here or, Liger and I used to grapple on the regular and I was coaching Liger in and catch wrestling and he knew catch and he was doing jujitsu at the time, but he's teaching, he's letting me teach him while he's teaching me how to be a worker, how to sell better and how to different approaches in the ring from Jushin Thunder Liger, this guy I'm watching as a kid and being like, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, you know? And this, this, this incredible workers are like, Oh yeah. Hey, come here, kid. Let me show you something. Okay. Yeah. I got time. I got all the time you want. Anytime you will give me it's yours, whatever I had planned. It's off the books. It's yours now. And, uh, um, coaching is really about attitudes first. And which is why I take the, 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 I take on the guys I do 
and I don't the ones that I don't uh, because you know like a guy I work with right now Royce Isaacs I met him at a show doing this bit this like street fight match and I just remember there wasn't a ton of hokey bullshit you know it seemed really straight to the point it's kind of difficult to work around these places when you know there's no padding there's no ropes it's, you know, they're gonna blast somebody through a door and all this stuff in a warehouse but by the end of it I was like oh I, I believe this this was good and then he comes up to me and starts, you know, wants to have a conversation, but he's not asking for anything from me. He's just being a genuine person. And so I remembered that. And, and when I got time to, to, to be able to bring this guy into blood sport and work with them. Okay, great. You know, you got, you got my time and you'll always be able to have it because you got the right attitude. Did you ever, cause you got thrown into the water with some incredible legends at a pretty young age without a lot of, you know, going leading up to it, you know, without going through the territories and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Were you ever overwhelmed? The reason I asked that is, you know, I grew up watching the Von Erichs in, in Texas. And mm -hmm. the first time I remember sitting across from the ring from Kevin, I remember just sitting there thinking like, oh my God, I, I remember watching this guy when I was with my grandfather and I was overwhelmed. You know, I don't know if it happened later or not, but that day I remember that distinctly that I'm sitting there thinking, this is my idol. Did you ever, you, you faced Couture in that mm -hmm. UFC championship was any of that ever, when you looked at it, when you stood in the ring, thought, wow, this is kind of cool? Yes and no. Uh, with, and in terms of working, there was plenty of times where, you know, okay, we've done all this, we've done all that, done all this. And then it's like, now I'm going to get in the back and walk into the ring. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the corner. Well, shit, don't fuck up. <laughs> like oh look at who number, i'm in the ring with right number now one, don't That's, that, that was my yeah. fault too <laughs> yeah i was just like oh god you know these guys are so good hell being teamed with perry saturn i remember him and uh cronus as the eliminators i'm just like oh you got perry saturn as your tag mate jesus perry was great, I, I, great yeah work. he was incredible now, yeah. perry was that i i added uh perry would ask me to teach him things on the road and i'm just like okay yeah i mean whatever you want dude i mean <laughs> you're perry saturn you could you could ask for ice cream cigarettes or a wrestling hold you're getting all of them so uh uh in that sense you know always but i'd have to try and make sure to compartmentalize because i'm still there as my own self right and they see me in, in a way of having somewhat of a uh, of a peership with them so i, I gotta deliver in terms of how they see what's possible of me and right. what 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 this company thinks I'm capable of doing. And I want to do my best. And when it came to shooting, it'd be, I'd be aware of it. You know, I remember watching Randy Couture and he's from Washington state as well. Beat Peter Belfort and cheering him on, watching fight Marie Smith, two Washington guys fighting each other. And, and then actually training with him because uh, he was coming and training under Marie Smith on striking and different things like that. He'd drive up from Portland and, being a guy in there and wrestling and, and grappling with him and training uh, as he had these fights against Pedro Hizzo and some other guys when he was champ. And then, you know, I, I got my opportunity to fight Randy on like six weeks notice. And I was coming off of uh, arthroscopic knee surgery and I guess all their other, what they thought were better choices weren't available. So uh, when they went down that list, they gave me a ring and I said, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, I, I got this. But uh, in shooting, when it comes to it, it it's uh it's a, i'm aware of it uh i can definitely think about it after the fact but when it comes to shooting i'm just out there to destroy that's it I, I, this is 
I'm going to train as hard as I can. And I'm going to break this guy into a million pieces. And, and I want to, I want to put a hurting on somebody bad enough. That they don't want to try it twice. And uh, I guess maybe one of the more, the first real experience of this was fighting Dan Severn, who was a huge idol of mine watching in UFC. And, you know, he's repping pro wrestling and wrestling and suplexing guys. And, and then I, there I am in the ring with him and arm barring him at the end of it. And, you know, it's like, yeah, but my thought was he had beaten two teammates of mine. So I'm like, I'm getting revenge. But then, you know, not long after all this, I'm just like, you just fought one of your idols and you beat him. That's nuts. And and there ain't ever going to be a day I did Dan and Don's podcast. And, you know, <laughs> Dan Severn, man, I fought Dan Severn. That's crazy. It's never uh, it's never not going to be something cool as hell that I did or uh, or the relationship I have with Don working him in the ring. And uh, uh, there's a big, long story that goes with it. I'll save for another one. But uh, <laughs> my dad saying, uh you know, I'm telling Dan, oh yeah, Don's left shoulder is kind of kind of banged up real bad, so I, I need me to work around it. And I'm like, you better not hurt Don Fry. I'm like, Dad, I'm not gonna hurt Don. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare. Possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, trust me, I will take care of Don Fry. Just don't don't you worry about it. I got Don's back. And uh, is and that not just the biggest with... alpha male ever? Is Don Fry? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that mustache alone. You know, yeah, I, really. I, I think it'd take a whole whole crowd of people to take it down. Yeah. What do you consider yourself? You know, most guys consider themselves either strikers, grapplers, mm -hmm. catch. What, what do you consider yourself when you your 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 core tenant? My my strength is is grappling, catches, catch can. That's that's what I am. I'm a wrestler, but uh, I guess ultimately I'm just a fighter. You know, if I if it takes hitting you, headbutting you, uh, suplexing you uh elbows kicks you know i i've trained in so many varieties of martial arts and i've been doing striking stuff for such a long time and um uh, later in my career one of my sparring partners or, and i was a part of sparring as camps with them was uh prince charles martin who has been ranked uh up in the the tops of the heavyweight rankings and and another guy um joe hanks these guys are Full on, you know, they were all top 20 American heavyweights in the world. And we're all sparring partners with each other. And that's not me just getting the crap kicked out of me wrestler versus boxer. This is me boxing with these guys and I you know holding my own and, and being a worthy guy to go out there and, and, and spar with them, help them get prepared for their stuff and, and vice versa for me. Uh, and I've done bare knuckle boxing before. You know, I, I beat a guy. I want to uh, ask you about that. How was the bare knuckle boxing? It was a rush. It was so awesome. It felt like what MMA was when I first did it, and we were calling it No Holds Barred. That's what it felt like again, where you just travel somewhere. There's, you know, there's some heater over here, some real, some ringer. And it's like, all right, that's your ringer. Well, I'm the ringer from my country. So let's go at it and, and seeing what happens. It feels like, you know, it feels like a, like the movie Bloodsport or, or a video yeah. game, Street Fighter 2, some shit like that. It, it's a, uh, it's adventure. And I absolutely loved it. It must have been what it was like um, doing territory stuff way back in the day or like listening to the old stories from uh, uh, from 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 Roddy, um, you know, Roddy Piper and him going around and being like, oh, yeah, these guys, you know, just tearing me up and beating me up. And that story he tells of, 
getting broke in a little bit. And then he, he gets an offer to go wrestle, I think in Missouri or somewhere. He's like, Oh yeah. Oh, that sounds great. I hope it's anybody, but Larry, the ax Hennig again. And sure enough, it's Larry, the ax Hennig, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, I was lucky enough. I got to know, I got to know Piper a little bit. Um, great guy. Tons great of guy. stories. Great guy. Yeah. And, uh, Hey, Hey, Mr. Briscoe said when, when, uh, Vince got Roddy Piper, that's when he knew that they were going to sell Georgia Championship Wrestling. He was yeah. that big of a draw. Roddy was that oh, wow, yeah, that that big of influence, and 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 that was that was our tipping point right there. I mean, Sarge had left, uh, Hogan of course had left mm -hmm. many years. Valentine had left, but when they got Hot Rod, my brother and I, that that that's it, and we're mm -hmm. we're we're doomed for defeat now. They 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 got our they got our mail ticket, and then they did, you know. And that was yeah. it was time, but I want to get in your 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 camps and your clinics are iconic, uh, Josh. And and uh, I, I how did they come about? I mean, I you know the guys have come out of there are just spectacular. And I have a friend, uh, Tadaki Hata, one of my old teammates from Oklahoma State. He's been involved, I think, in a couple of them somewhere around around the West Coast here. But I I just. Uh, he sent me a T-shirt, and I still got my Barnett T-shirt too. By the way, so, and I wear it proudly. But uh, tell us a little bit about your camp and and how, how what what's involved in them. Well, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll structure something where if you want to just learn catch, I'll teach you that. If you if you want to work on uh, full MMA stuff or a particular part of striking, I mean, it can be tailored to what you think is necessary. But the, the I think the biggest premise behind it really is that. I have been fortunate to know people that have invested in me, not just what what you could say is just their knowledge. It's the knowledge that was given to them and the knowledge that was given to the person that gave it to them. And there's this whole, you know, if you, if if Carl or Billy was teaching me something, this goes all the way back to, to Billy Wicks and, or I mean, uh, Billy Riley, you know, or if I'm on a phone call with old Pops Wicks. And he's talking about the way he likes to grab up a double wrist lock. Or, yeah. or, you know, this is, it seems small to some people, but it's big to me. And it's, well, it's one big of my first I, matches in pros with Billy Wicks. I uh, learned so much. <laughs> Pops is a great man yeah. too. And, and uh, um, I, I, I want to take these things that I've been fortunate enough to, to have brought to me, given to me and, and try to keep them alive in the world and put it out there and, and, by doing so, I feel like I'm not just teaching people necessarily just moves. I mean, that's, that's a part of it. But in these interactions, I, I'm going to bring up where it came from, how it came about that I, I, I learned this or where I used it uh, and, and maybe who gave it to me, who was even better with it than I was. And if you can find anything on them, you, you know, go watch it, go check this person out and bring those names back to life and, and bring what comes with it, the, the approach. Right. And if you're a if you're a snake pit guy, you're going to be different from uh, like a farmer burns guy. You're going to be different from um, the Kodakon, which was back then when Ad Santel was going over and fighting those guys. It, it's all going to be a little different. But one of these is going to be something for you. And I just want that in the world that the world has such a short memory these days. You know, I remember watching boxing in the 80s and 90s. And we would still reference back to people, not just the, the commentators, but the fans too. would reference back to people from the 70s and 60s and even older at times. You know, you, it wouldn't be a surprise to hear Sugar Ray Robinson's name brought up or Carmen Basilio or any of these these old greats or even you know, go back to John L. Sullivan or uh, uh, 
uh, you know, any number of guys. Nowadays, it feels like people don't remember anything that's even two years old now. Right. And, you know, I, I just I'm not telling people how they have to how they have to approach any of this stuff. I just think like it's a travesty. And I feel like uh, there's a lot more that they could have out of these experiences if they just had that. You know, I feel like it, it could be it could be better for them. It, it um, really sounds to me like, Josh, you, you, you look at the kid and, and you, you see what what's best for him and what what his mm-hmm. his mindset is, and, and then tailor tailor his clinic and his cap cap uh, regimen right. towards him. Yeah. I I don't want you to be a robot. If it takes me telling you what to do for everything, well then you're not operating on your right. own you know your own instincts, instincts your own ability i and i can't be there all the time uh, i want to build that person up with the best foundation i can give them and then allow them to use that to, to do everything else and so you know I'll, I'll get kids uh and marks and fans whatever saying oh well, well i can't believe that you actually think x wrestler is good because they do you know a lot of aerial stuff or you think you know this guy one of your guys did this or that you know i didn't think they. it's like no no no. it's not about the moves it's about why are you doing them how are you doing them and what's the point and who are you to do it why would you you know i mean i'm not going to go out there and hit a moonsault if i could (laughs) you know i'm not going to do it why you know the only time you might see would have ever seen some shit like that is just because i wanted to pull it off on a house show for fun but it's not that's not really right. who I am. Yeah, see you know? if you could do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just just, you know, because look, man, we're out there on the road. We all know we like to pop pop the boys and have a little yeah. fun on our own sake. Yeah, but right. uh, uh, but I'm not a guy who uses a lariat very much, but I taught myself to throw a lariat by watching all the people who I thought had good lariats and then go into a heavy bag and trying to hit a heavy bag with a lariat like I really wanted to hurt somebody and then dialing it back from there. And figuring out how do I impart that violence of really trying to decapitate someone with a lariat, but do it in a way that can be snug and proper, but not kill nobody, you know. And if they do get killed by a lariat, it's because they didn't pay attention. That's the other thing. I don't throw my arm up for you to duck under it. I throw it right where your head is because you need to duck it so that people realize that I missed. Not you think people can't see you doing the the damn hundred freestyle out there when you whip that arm up, but every other time you throw it dead at them, you think they don't notice that they're not that dumb. So I'm not going to treat them like they're dumb. But I'm also not going to treat you like you're incapable of wrestling with me. So if you don't duck, you got ham right in the face with an arm because of yourself, right. not me. It's not my fault. Well, that was real stiff. Well, you're not supposed to get hit with it. Dummy. <laughs> which is again why is it stiff we're not supposed to get hit with it which means you weren't even you weren't ready to bump either so well, of course you're going to get wrecked yeah george Steele was uh who's a good friends with jerry and me uh, agent of the wwe george animal Steele. Mm-hmm. uh he asked me one time a question i was a, just a, a young kid in wwe for my first year there and he goes why do we always do it that way and I was sitting there and I thought the answer is obvious to me, but I, I'm not going to say it because I'm a young kid. I, you know, I'm not right. gonna, and, We're afraid and, of screwing up too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And thank God Sean Michaels was sitting close to me. Sean goes, cause it works. <laughs> I said, thank you. I didn't say thank you, but you know, that's the answer. Sometimes, sometimes we overthink stuff. You know, sometimes if it's always worked, it still works. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes, sometimes it just sometimes doing the things that matter really still matter. Yeah, of course. And uh, 
look, if you can be on that page where you're going to throw a lariat, you want that guy to go under it. And you because you want the effect of it's dangerous. He's got to avoid it. He can't be anywhere near it. Uh, otherwise, he, he really threatens losing this match or going unconscious. It's just not not possible, let alone, you know, if it's, you know, JBL's lariat or Stan Hansen's lariat. You're like, oh, no, man, this this is a this is a match ender. So I better not get caught with it. Well, hell, you can also set it up so you can get a bigger sell out of the miss where, you know, you come in with that lariat, you oh, come yeah. so hard, you lose your balance a little bit. Well, that looks like, oh, well, there ain't no fake in that. Oh, boy. You know, Stan Anson would do a whole match where he'd start just pulling up the, this elbow sleeve. You know, he'd go to pull yep. it up and the Japanese crowd would just go crazy. You know, and all he would do is just slowly start pulling it up. And then finally he ends up either hitting it or not hitting it. But yeah. the whole match was that anticipation like Hitchcock used to do of the bomb underneath the table. When is mm -hmm. it going to go off? Yeah. And uh, simple, simple ways of approaching this stuff like that. Um, that's where you get that maximum effect out of it. And, uh, you know, just just something with missing a Larry. This is also why I tell people, everyone I work with, I go, if you want to be a worker, you got to watch Antonio Inoki versus Billy Robinson, 60 minute, two out of three falls. And, and you watch this and you come back and you tell me what you see, because what I want them to notice is at any time, these guys are trying to hit their finisher. That's like they're not waiting. Oh, here's a move they, they hit in the go home. And then they everybody you're just giving it all away at that point. All of a sudden. You know, whenever you can, boom, you go after, try to get your thing. And they react like, oh, this, I absolutely better not let Billy Robinson get this double underhook on me, this butterfly. I got to get my foot to the rope. I got to do this. I got to sag to the floor. You got to, when you show the threat of, of what's happening now, nobody needs to know wrestling. They just know if they see this, this is important. This has meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, we can't think enough of your time, but I, we, you told me in a text last night you wanted to ask yeah. me about Mauro Ranella, who's a good friend. Yeah. Of you, yes, yes, indeed. And go ahead. Yeah, and I just remember at the time it just being a thing that was was out there and the distress that it was causing Mauro. And uh, uh, you know, he's my old broadcast partner. Uh, hell, he was calling me in pride. He, you know, he's been a part of a uh, little adventure that is Josh Barnett for a, a good portion <laughs> of it. And, uh, um, you know, we were, uh, you know, we've always been really close. So um, it just really was like, okay, well, there's no way I could go on here without, no, no, uh, and, and I understand. without asking I about it. Yeah. I certainly don't mind answering because I've never really told my side of the story because mm -hmm. I just didn't want to escalate the story. But even when you tell your side, whether it makes sense or not, you escalate the story. And yeah. I just wanted the whole thing to go away. But the main thing that happened with Morrow was that show called Bring It to the Table. It was a show that they did on WWE Network. And there was a, a poll that was on it. So we did this show. We're doing it in Orlando. And the, right before the end of the show, I used to go and do a rant every time on this show. You know, some type of rant about something. Kind of like Stephen A. Smith does on ESPN. Mm -hmm. Things like that. So they said, hey, we need a rant for you to do. I said, okay, well, what do you got? And they said... Uh, they looked around, they couldn't find something. They said, Hey, Morrow just retweeted a poll that he was in, that he was the number one announcer. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, I'll, I'll do a rant on that. And so I did the rant on the poll. I'd, I'd never heard of that poll before. You know, people tell this, you know, came to this post fact said, Oh, John must've been really jealous about that poll. Cause I wasn't the announcer. I don't look at much for stuff on the internet anyway, because most of it about me is negative. So I don't really <laughs> read much of it. So I, I'd, I'd never seen the poll. 
I just did rental this rental this poll. And, and the next after it aired, they told me, they said, Hey, you know, Meltzer said something about you. And I said, why would he say something about me? He said, well, that was his poll. That's how little oh. I knew about the poll. Now, Morrow saw that. I just assumed that Morrow knew that was a working rant about this whole thing, that it was done in a working context. In hindsight, which is always 2020, somebody should have smartened Morrow up about that. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I think when Morrow heard it, you know, when you hear it through the grapevine, it sounds much worse than it is. But there was an abs- there was zero malice behind that. I mean, absolutely none. It was just simply, I'd heard about that uh, poll a couple minutes before the segment. They said, do a rant on it. I said, okay, I did a rant on it. I thought, no big deal. This will be something fun to talk about on commentary because now Morrow can mm-hmm. say he's the number one announcer. And, you know, the JBL character can be jealous that I'm not the number one announcer. We thought we'd have fun with it. Well, it turned out that Marl, I think, took it. I'm not going to speak for him. I think that he took it the wrong way because that was certainly a point of contention later. So I felt terrible that somebody didn't smarten up Marl to that. I, last time I saw Marl, uh, I think he was working for NXT. I think we were mm-hmm. down in New Orleans and he was uh, across the street and it was just me walking back from something. He was standing there waiting on a car. And I walked across the street and just shook his hand. I hadn't seen him since all of this. I said, hey, how you doing, Marl? Good to see you. And he said, good to see you, man, and just walked off. You know, I, there, there's zero animosity for me toward Morrow. And anything that was done, in my opinion, was always done in a working context. So mm-hmm. I, I, the when Morrow issued the statement that I was not, not the reason that he left WWE, I had no idea what the reason was. I, that wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't involved in it. So. Well, at that point, people – you could see what would, would, would say, oh, well, that's just what he's going to say to be political about it or to, you know, right. he's, he's going to, yeah, he's going to, he's going to hide that when even if, you know, if he's telling the truth and it, the fact that you've, you've come up to him and shook his hand and talked to him, I mean, that man makes me feel a lot better. Not like I was, you know, on here to get all hot about nothing. And which is also why I hit you up ahead of time because it's like, nah, don't, no, don't drop something on someone's feet out of nowhere, you know, have respect for somebody and, and uh, you know, if you got something that you want to really talk about in, in this manner, just talk to them about it ahead of time. First, give them a chance to uh, give them a heads up and, and know so that, because, you know, at the end of the day, it was just, it was just more about how it affected my friend potentially than anything else. And I completely and, understand. Uh, I, I had no idea that that would be taken as a legit rant. It was just something that came mm-hmm. up on the fly. And in fact, there was some guy in WWE said, Hey, we, we should have smartened up Morrow before that. And I said, I didn't even think about it because it, to me, it was a working situation. Same as me being a heel commentator with him, mm-hmm. with all working stuff. You know, as far as I knew, I, I didn't have a bad relationship with Morrow. I don't know that. I can't speak for him. I speak only can speak for me. Well, right. Yeah. And you know, look, it could be that day. It goes down bad. Any other day it's seen the way you would hope it would be. And, you know, regardless of the, of, of, of how it goes, you know, we, if, if we always get a chance to, to go out there and at least meet that person again and say, Oh, Hey man, you know, and just have a conversation. I had a, a guy who I, who I still work with um, in, in regards to MMA and, and he was kind of sideways a little bit about something that he interpreted that I said, and I just got to sit down with him and now we're really best buds because, right. you know, if, if you really, if you really, feel like there's a misunderstanding or something just just talk to a person and if yeah, you can meet a person on their level yeah you know unfortunately morrow uh whatever reason i can't remember morrow came back about it. i don't think we worked together after that so there wasn't mm-hmm. a point where i could tell morrow hey i hope you know that that was 
a, a work that I certainly meant nothing. I remember uh, when I came back recently, I was doing some promo and I, I told Dolph Ziggler before I walked out, I said, Dolph, I'm going to go out there and say a bunch of things I really don't mean. I want you to know that. <laughs> so, but Morrow got me tickets one time to a UFC match in Vegas. Uh, he got me, I think it was Connor and uh, Diaz. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, really okay. Cool. That's a big one. Oh, it's huge. Huge. He got me tickets. I was out in Vegas and I called him and I was uh, going to pay for him. He got them for me and uh, everything. It was, it was oh, fantastic. Terrific. I enjoyed you have your cowboy. Do you have a cowboy hat on? I did. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Absolutely. It was uh I think that was one of the days Diaz won. So there was a bunch of drunk Irishmen afterwards oh. <laughs> that were not that were not very happy about that. Outcome. No, no, that'd be a wild, that'd be a hot night on the streets. That one, yeah. <laughs> so I hope that explains a little bit that uh, at least there was not malice involved with me. It was something I, that my opinion was a was a yeah. Well, game. look, if if you and him are good, then I'm good. You know, that's it, at the end of the day. You know, it's. It's, it's I'm not here to be somebody's arbiter on, on, on what they shouldn't, how they shouldn't, shouldn't feel about anything. It was just, nobody's uh, your you friend. Know, that yeah, no, your of course. Friend. And that's what friends do. You know, friends yeah. ask what happened that, you know, and I appreciate you giving me the heads up on it. That was, that was really cool. Well, like I, I, we've, we've had some time to talk uh, prior to this um, and, and here on, on the podcast itself. So I hope that, uh, you know, that, however I try to, whatever I describe who I am, uh, people, I want them to really know that that's, that's, that's it. That's how I, that's how I run my life. Well, awesome. Well, Josh, hey, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this since uh, Mr. Briscoe told me that we, we were going to have you on. I'm such a, a big fan of everything you're done. I wanted to, there's so much more I want to ask you about, but well, I, 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 I could, I could do this for hours, digging oh. into asking you guys about not just the, the business, but all your, your amateur sports backgrounds, uh, how, how your, 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 uh, as a kid getting into like, Oh man, I could just go into all of this. You know, uh, I, I love professional wrestling. I love fighting. And, uh, you know, my thought has always been pro wrestling and shooting and working is just two sides of the same coin. That's it. And that's the way I see it. I, I think, um, one thing I think that pro wrestling has all over MMA, especially right now, is that elite pro wrestling still knows its history and its past, and it has this idea of of the the old supposed to bring up the young. And I, I hope that uh, with what I do, it helps reinforce that, and that the people that work my shows, they take that to heart too. So wherever they're at, Impact. New York, WWE, AEW, I don't care where they end up in the world. They take that same principle and they do that and they pass it on. They bring up new new, new talent and new growth. Yeah, Josh, I got one question. Thank you very much. But I got one question. Did, what do you think of the murder of the, the WWE and UFC now? What, what, how do you feel about it? You know, I, there is definitely something that can be done there. I just don't know that there's that person that can fully integrate or make use of it outside of like oh guys just showing up at each other's events in the crowds you know which that's good you know i mean it is publicity in and, of, in and of itself for each individual promotion but how do you really capitalize on that i think on one end maybe maybe the intention is just that people think of them as being uh in the same market so to speak and so they can do things like have each other's athletes show up at stuff or have people make guest appearances to talk about or, or be on camera or, or, but, but really it's really just about a portfolio around investment instead of anything else. Um, 
but you know being a guy that does both and sees it the both as being you know really part of the same system yeah i'd like to see how that could be better exploited for for the for the athletes and for the promotions themselves but the one trouble is if you got a bunch of shooters over there you don't necessarily want them coming over and just outright job into guys on the other side or um or even maybe the WW, uh, WWE is like, well, we just can't be putting all these dudes over. I mean, how, how long do we even get to have them? What are we going to do with them? Um, what does that do for our guy that's, that, that's putting the guy over? I mean, is there a way that this can can build them up? And you know, I'm a big believer in, look, going up or going down is its own thing. But either way, it needs to make everybody – it needs to make sense. It needs to have a reason. And, and the best of both worlds is – the guy who loses needs to be seen as better and stronger than he was when he got in the ring, just as much as the guy that wins needs to be seen elevated. You know, everybody's got him. Everybody needs to make money off it. Everybody needs to grow from it. Everybody needs to get something out of it. That's yeah. the way it works. So I, I don't know how that could go and did taking guys. See, oh, go ahead. No, do you see, do you see many Ronda Rousey's or, or Brock Lesnar doing You're doing both or what? I don't know. I think, most fighters are going to see it as something they do at the end of their career or when it's over, not something that they do while they're still mixed in with what they're doing. And I think the UFC would probably feel like even if there was a potential for somebody to maybe break through and be, well, I mean, this would be an insane, but be a Kurt Angle. Okay. But the UFC is going to think, well, well, WWE is getting that out of them we're not getting that right like maybe we can get a little cut out of it maybe they have some some monetary side that that's what's worked for, for both but you know and then what if that guy gets hurt doing wwe and now we don't get to use him for ufc and so everybody's going to want to protect their assets you know just the same as they're not going to send bobby lashley over in a heavyweight fight uh from wwe to ufc they're not going to do that because they're like well no we got all this in store for bobby and what if bobby loses the fight how do we you know what do we do with all this and right um so it's it ain't easy but um oh may, maybe maybe something can come of it but uh i don't i don't necessarily see that crossover stuff happening too much or at least not not to that not to that level okay well thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate your time today josh uh, it's, it's my pleasure to, to sit down with some some greats like yourselves and uh, who, who've been out there day in and day out and some of the biggest and most important matches and rings and and being a part of all the way from being a worker to being in office and production and commentary booths and, and developing. It's just, uh, you know, Thank pro you. wrestling's my love. So, uh, yeah, anytime. Thanks, Thank Josh. You.